Practice Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, President Trump keeps blaming the Fed, and the markets are now worried about something more than trade wars. But first, a political windfall for local media. So going into this presidential election cycle, everyone expected it would be the most expensive in history, with estimates that upwards of $10 billion would be spent on advertising between presidential campaigns, congressional campaigns, and issue advocacy. It's the sort of thing that local media outlets, particularly radio and TV, bake into their long-term financial projections, particularly in early voting states like Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. And local media is pretty much in the dumps right now, so any life raft is worth clinging onto tight. What's changed recently, though, is that the life raft might have become even more inflated, thanks to the unexpected staying power of Tom Steyer who's already spent an estimated $100 million on his campaign, and the unexpected entry of former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg, who makes Steyer look like a pauper and who is talking about spending at least $1 billion. The question, therefore, is if these billionaire businessmen, and throw President Trump in there too, are the saviors that local news has been looking for, or if it's just lipstick on a terminally ill pig. That's the question we will ask Axios Media reporter Sarah Fisher in 15 seconds. But first, this. Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech, from the Valley to DC. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. We're joined now by Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. When I first started seeing the numbers and the dollars that Trump and Steyer and Bloomberg particularly were spending in this campaign season, my first thought was, this is amazing for local media, particularly radio and TV. But but you also argued that there are some rules that restrict it. It's not just like Bloomberg takes $500 million and hands it to radio stations and goes on with his life. First of all, Dan, the two mediums you referenced, television and radio, they are finite and finite in inventory. There's only 24 hours in a day. There's only a certain amount of TV shows and thus a certain amount of TV spots. TV spots are also frequency capped. You can't just run an hour of basically all ads. You have to actually include programming there, too. So even if Bloomberg wanted to spend exorbitant amounts of money in some of these markets, he's going to run into ceilings. So what you're going to start to see is, one, investment in local media outside of just television and radio, maybe in digital, maybe in out of home, things like billboards. But two, yes, you can expect them, some of these units to lift the rates, but they can only do it to a certain extent. Most political advertising rules that extend to broadcast and local cable make sure that the political candidates themselves, not super PACs, have to be offered what's called the lowest unit rate. So they can't upcharge Bloomberg by, you know, exorbitant amounts. In other words, if they raise the rates for Bloomberg, they're also raising the rates in the local hardware store at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And quite frankly, for other local candidates. So there has been one pushback here, which is that even if you have to offer Bloomberg, what is called the lowest unit rate, it's the lowest unit commercial rate. So it's the rate that you would offer, like you just said, a local hardware store or something. Now, they could lift the lowest commercial rate. And so making it a little bit more expensive for other people in the market, including commercial actors, whether that's an automobile advertiser, et cetera, but also other political advertisers. The pushback that the Bloomberg campaign would argue, though, however, Dan, is, look, we're messaging around issues down ballot that also help you out. And in that sense, we're helping to place ads around things like healthcare and climate change that advocate for your positions and you don't even have to buy them. 
obviously, I'm not expecting that Bloomberg is spending a huge amount of money on actual physical newspaper ads, maybe a bit because the older electorate in some of these states in the primaries. But is it helping from your perspective, local newspapers, because they don't have caps on their digital advertising. So, you know, the websites of the newspapers in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. Maybe a little bit, but that's not where ad buyers are focused on. What you need to do is you need to do two things. You need to gather information so you could fundraise, and then you later down the line need to persuade. And the two mediums that you do that really well with are one, Google and Facebook, and then two, local TV. Local websites for local newspapers and stuff like that, it's not going to give you the types of data that you really need to be able to go after someone and ask them for money or ask them to volunteer. So maybe they're spending a little bit there, Dan, but it's not going to be a lot. You and I had a conversation yesterday in the office, and you don't see any prospect of, say, a Netflix agreeing to let, you know, if Bloomberg offered to pay a couple hundred million dollars to put an ad on their main screen, you don't see any possibility of that ever happening. No. Netflix has been pretty adamant about the fact that they don't want to get into the advertising game. They do product placement, but they're pretty, you know, strategic about making sure that the consumer experience is perfect. And if they were to just throw a campaign ad up onto the front of their screen, I can imagine that that wouldn't be the experience they've come to build for their consumers that they're proud of. The other thing about Netflix, and this is a little bit off point on the political side, is they're pretty comfortable taking on debt. At this point, it's not like Netflix is starving for cash because their investors are putting so much pressure on them. They don't need to act as quickly as if they would if they were a legacy media company. Fair enough. Let's expand this out and zoom this out on the local media a little bit here. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, recently agreed to co-sponsor a bill that would allow newspapers, including local newspapers, to collectively bargain with social media platforms like Facebook and Google. Can you explain, I guess, two things? How did McConnell end up becoming a part of this? And then more kind of broadly, does this matter? Well, McConnell became a part of it because other Senate Republicans were starting to join. Rand Paul had got involved and said he would co-sponsor the bill. And it was brought up by two senators, a Republican and a Democrat. I think the thing that this means is local politicians and, you know, Senator McConnell represents Kentucky at the end of the day, are feeling a lot of pressure for the constituencies to take care of their local businesses, and that includes their local papers. And so it's ironic, even though some lawmakers will go on the national stage on MSNBC or Fox or CNN and say, oh, that's fake news, or the media doesn't tell it right, at the end of the day, they're going to want to do what they can to take care of their local constituencies and their local papers. So that's why Mitch McConnell signed on to this bill. Will it do anything? I don't think too much. You know, allowing newspapers to collectively bargain against Google and Facebook, I don't think it's going to make a huge difference in what kind of money they're going to get paid by Google and Facebook. It's actually just more of a symbolic gesture, in my opinion, that lawmakers care and are thinking about the antitrust competitive imbalance between content creators and tech distributors. So finally, from listening to you, from what you've just said today, that you don't really think that this congressional move really matters all that much on the bottom line, that even though you've got Bloomberg and Steyer and Trump spending huge amounts of money, it's not necessarily a game changer for local news, is the general narrative, the local news is dying narrative, whether that be print or radio or local TV. From what you're saying, you still think that narrative is still accurate in play in 2020 as much as it was in 2019 or 2018? I think so. The only difference is that there's so much more national awareness around the problem that you're starting to see a ton of philanthropic donations and high-end donors come in and try to fix the local news problem. 
This is my take. Local news is a societal benefit, and it's a societal problem right now. And having a lot of ad hoc dollars and situations come in to try to, or solutions come in to try to fix it, is going to maybe piecemeal together some local jurisdictions. You know, okay, Google's backing a new newsroom in Youngstown, Ohio, but it's not going to solve the entire issue. If we want to solve the entire issue, we're probably going to need some more regulatory overhauls. And we've seen a few of them. I mean, we've lifted the broadcast and newspaper ownership caps. The FCC did that last year, so maybe that can help. But it's going to need something even more drastic if we're going to expect to have the same local news environments that we had 50, 30, 40, 20 years ago. Axios is Sarah Fisher. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My final two right after this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is President Trump, who this morning told CNBC's Joe Kernan that while America's economy is the envy of the world, it would be even stronger if the Fed hadn't raised interest rates in 2018. Now, with all of that, had we not done the big raise on interest, I think we would have been close to four. And I I could see 5,000 to 10,000 points more on the Dow. But that was a killer when they raised the rate. It was just a big mistake. Now, the Fed and its Trump-appointed chairman, Jay Powell, have been regular punching bags for the president, who is now using them to deflect from GDP growth that's lately been in the 2% range rather than in the 4% range that Trump had promised. And there's no indication that this particular blame game will end before November's election, even though the Fed cut. Yeah, it cut rates three times last year, down to the levels that Trump wanted. Now Trump says he wants the Fed to cut even more, moving the goalposts to shield himself from campaign criticism. And finally, speaking of the election, it is now the financial market's top risk, whatever happens in November, according to a new Bank of America survey of fund managers. The trade war had topped this survey since last May, but is now sitting in second place. And just for future worry, the idea of a, quote, bond bubble pop rose to number three. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great National Library Shelfie Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.